Hello, everyone. I'm Wolf Tivey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium Magazine. I'm joined by Ash Milton, our Managing Editor. Hey, all. And we're also joined by Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired Magazine and co-chair of the Long Now Foundation. He's also a prolific writer, a photographer, and a traveler. His most recent project is called Vanishing Asia. It's a three-volume photographic collection of Asia's vanishing cultures. Kevin took these photos over a number of decades throughout his travels to 35 different countries across Asia. So, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I am so delighted to be chatting with you. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us uh, just about the book right off the bat? Oh, well, you know, I actually have... um, the first, I have one volume, the first oh. uh, of, there are three volumes. That's a beauty. It's so looking this, very nice. Show you how huge it is. So, um, amazing. I'm just, you know, picking up things at random. Um, this is in uh, Central, well, I call it Central Asia, but it's the center part of Asia. Anyway, just showing you the scale of this thing. Wow. Three volumes and um, 50 years. I started working in 1972, 50 years of um, doing it as a compulsion. There's sort of no, there was no demand <laughs> with that way. Right. There's no one saying we need more pictures of vanishing Asia. Um, but um, for me, uh, I am someone who believes very strongly that Asia is where our future is going to be happening and that takes me there to talk about the future but at the same time i've been very aware of how fast their past is being abandoned Mm -hmm. i have no nostalgia for it necessarily i'm not trying to prevent it from happening or trying to recover it i'm just saying i'd like to document it um, as evidence and as a as inspiration for um things in the future so tiny example of if you were going to put on a festival or something some of the festivals they have in asia certainly have figured out how to do certain things and it would be um mm-hmm. worthwhile trying to examine um those kinds of festivals to see what we might want to do in the future right so this leads us very well into our first question which is about that um so you- you work obviously with Wired and Long Now, and it entails uh, a very strong focus on the future. So, why should long-term futurists be paying attention to these vanishing traditions? You started yeah. answering that a little bit already, but I'm curious to hear that elaborated. It, it's in my own experience, the the best futurists have been very avid historians. In fact, right. as I myself became more interested in the future for the first time, I became much more interested in history. I hated history in high school and um, <laughs> didn't, didn't make any sense to me or any, I couldn't see any reason to, to pay attention to it. But the more you think about the future, the more important it seems to have a sense of the past, partly because it's this momentum, but partly because there are patterns that you can pick up on and partly because um, you want to expand your possibility space. Um, and right. um, there's more that's happened on this planet than, than we're aware of. And many of the things that seemed impossible don't seem impossible once you have a sense of history. Um, for instance, I become more and more interested in kind of future religions um, 
because I no longer think like we're headed to a world without religion. It's more that we're going to have different kinds of religions and the power of that kind of belief is mm. very, very strong and um, potent. And so the more I read history and about the role of religion has, the more it suggests to me that I need to kind of open up my possibility space mm-hmm. of what I think about will happen in the future. And so um, my interest in Asia, in the history of Asia, goes in hand with my conviction that Asia is the future for us. I've noticed a tendency among um, a number of people who would either self-describe or definitely fit into the category of very long-termist futurists, where they are becoming more and more interested in the long history going backwards. And I think that that's... It's, it's not an obvious convergence for a lot of people, but I think it's actually a natural one in a lot of ways. And yeah. do you think that this kind of um, turn has, is sort of insufficient still? Like, should more people who think of themselves as futurists be throwing themselves into this sort of long history? I, I can only talk from my own experience, which has been, yes, for me, the, 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 the whatever time and investment I've put into the past has been invaluable in terms of thinking about the future um and so yes i i i I would recommend it um and you mentioned um you know uh there's there's kind of a emerging field i might call it kind of big history like you know the, the really large overview so 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 it's it's i mean to be a historian you actually have to deal with the details the specifics but the view that's going to be most uh, valuable to uh, the future is 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 that kind of larger level view of the um, enduring patterns. The um, Jeff Bezos is kind of famous for um, his operation at Amazon of of becoming um, one of the most valuable companies on the planet and very future oriented because he kindly uh, always asks himself. Um, what are the things that aren't going to change? I want to. I, I want to. I want to make my business foundation based on the things that are will not change. Right, and that is also again another valuable question to be asking um, as going forward. Maybe I would say everything can change over time, but there's some things that are going to be very slow to change. And so that yeah. would be one way to say it. So what some are the things, things are still here after thirty thousand years? Right. What are some of the things that are going to be very slow to change? And, um, uh, you know, and for me, a belief in bigger things is one of those. And so, and so, um, uh, so I, so I think that, that, that kind of big history view is, is, is very, very valuable because in many ways, all that we're doing as futurists is a big history view of the future. You can't mm. really, you can't really project the specifics at all. That's, that's my conclusion about looking at complex adaptive systems and the history of predictions and stuff and evolution itself is that the um, specifics at the species level are inherently unpredictable but at the higher levels we have directions and we have things we have other patterns that we can rely on so that um that turn to the future is probably a good segue to our next question a lot of the 
scenes we see in this book. You know, I'm thinking of like the the Eagle Hunters of Mongolia, which have a lot of great shots in here. Um, you get the sense of these wild frontiers, but you know, now a lot of these former frontiers are being transformed or being transformed into urban, technocratic, even surveilled societies. Um, now, some people would see that as a loss, but you write in the book, and I think you mentioned earlier, you don't actually view this with a lot of regret. Um, and so I guess my question here is, what things do you see as being gained? What important things are being gained in this transformation? Mm -hmm. And what, if anything, is being lost that we should regret? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a big question um, and covers a lot of territory. So, so I would say, in general, the, um, the traditional things that I capture in this book, there's 9,000 images of details of costuming, architecture, food, rituals, ceremonies, festivals that um, are under threat. Either they've already disappeared or they've been transformed or they're disappearing. And um, so a lot of those traditions and lifestyle choices were things that were mandated because of poverty, because they were going to build from local materials only. They would build their homes only from what they could find within, you know, uh, a mile of where they were um, making things. And so um, they had a lot of time. They had more time than than cash. And um, the buildings they make look beautiful. They look very appropriate and situated, but they're inferior in the sense that they're drafty. They're maybe cold, they don't have indoor plumbing, they're smoky, um, the mosquitoes come in, whatever it is. And so, um, so there are downsides to those things. And the reason why they would prefer to live in a concrete box that has air conditioning that's closed off and sealed and has indoor plumbing. And that's, I would choose exactly the same thing. Um, now there are ways to to modernize and that example of making modern houses that are have some of the attributes, and that's what basically often happens when they have enough money. So so what I'm saying is is that um, a lot of those old ways um, are disappearing for valid reasons, meaning mm -hmm. like some of the costuming that say the Indian women wore were were a form of imprisonment. It actually hindered their movements their freedoms, they, they, were, they were tied to their farm by the stuff that they wore. And the reason why they modern dresses are that they, they, you actually had more freedom, were liberated. And so, um, so they look beautiful, but there was, there, was a, there was a cost or a reason to those and, and that's why they're just kind of disappearing. So um, my hope is, is that people will see these images and be inspired to do something new, to renew the ideas, to say, well, there was, there was something kind of cool in that. Maybe we can do something that doesn't have some of the same downsides and we can make a new version or something, renew it in some ways. We can take this idea of the kind of space that you get with the old house, but let's do it when the more modern materials or in a more modern way. And so that's what I see that, look back as 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 a as kind of tapping into this bank of ideas and innovation in the past 
that doesn't work on its own, but could be recycled and renewed in new ways and can open up our ideas of what is possible now. So rather than make the houses exactly the same we do now, um, let's try and make, maybe we have some new materials and we want to go back and look at bamboo, making houses that are entirely out of bamboo. There's something about that that could be useful as we make new organic materials or pseudo-organic materials. And so, um, so that's what I see is, is, is that the, um, it's not the all past things, but many of the past traditions had costs associated with them that it's not, they're not often visible. And it's the reason why they were kind of left behind, but they still have good ideas in them that can be moved forward. If, if I could maybe um, reword or reframe that answer that, you know, it, if I look at the early modernists, you know, the predecessors maybe to the modern futurists, they definitely see industrialization and modernity as a force for regeneration as this kind of vitality that we can choose to embrace. And if we do it properly, yeah, we're going to see a lot of disruption. But if we, you know, come through that and if we do it wisely, um, we can actually have a much greater kind of society and maybe realize a lot more uh, possibilities or potentials that we have um, and not be held back kind of as you're saying um by these limitations that we we had before modernity hit i i know you think of your uh, correct me if this is wrong but i you know you you generally um express your predictions or views on technology as an optimist as someone who's optimistic about that potential um it sounds like your travels uh over the decades in asia have have been a proof for you that that um, that is the way we should look at that transformation. Like, would that be an accurate assessment? Yes, that would be. Um, I have witnessed um, the transformation of societies that basically went through the entire developmental sequence that, that the West took 200 years to accomplish that we that the Asia is doing in 20 years, mm. 10 times the speed. And so... Um, uh, my my early travels 50 years ago really weren't 50 years ago. They were 250 years ago. I mean, the parts of Afghanistan, say, or the Himalayas were in medieval times. They were they they literally had not changed in hundreds of years, and they were medieval societies in every respect. And I had the privilege of visiting them, so it was like a time machine. And then to see them Thanks. jump forward was. Um, amazing and and was visceral proof to me of the value of what we get in this bargain of modernity and there are absolutely there are costs and they are very evident in most of the places and cities of um, asia which are gritty and often very ugly and um not at all not at all those beautiful pictures i have of the past um yet people by the hundreds of millions move into them with one-way tickets um, because they have more choices in those greedy slums. Believe it or not, the greedy slum offers them more choices than they had at home in their beautiful villages with organic food and wonderful vistas. 
in the city, they had the possibility of becoming a mathematician or a ballerina or a web designer or whatever. They don't have to be a farmer, which is their only choice um, in their village. And so, um, so that's why they moved to these places that um, don't seem to be very photogenic. And um, um, I saw that transformation with my own eyes. And for me, that's where my optimism in part comes from is, is that um, uh, it meant that there were people, brilliant people who in a village would only have had the choice of becoming a farmer or maybe even a blacksmith, but, and, and whose genius was not being harvested or shared. It, when they moved into the city, they had at least more of a chance of being able to maximize their inherent talents and gifts. Doesn't guarantee it, but there was more chance they had than living in the village. So some of the stuff you've said here, you know, makes me think of something, the, the print question, which is, um, very related to this work you've done. So, you know, in, in our modern society, we no longer need print as the necessary medium for an information transfer. We can send things around online. We have much cheaper ways to do it. Obviously we've moved an enormous amount of our information society online. Right. And yet some of us, of course, are still working on print uh, projects. So you've put a lot of work into the physical artifact. Mm -hmm. For this project, you know, selecting the paper, the weight, feel, the size, as you were showing yeah, us, yeah. Um, and you know, we have experience doing a print magazine as well. And yeah. our experience was that the physicality adds a sort of whole new dimension to the conceptual work. But people wonder, you know, why not just do it all online? Isn't the future just online? Right, so I'd be right. curious to hear your take. What's the role of printed yeah, work yeah. in 2021? Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, you all, there are all these issues you mentioned in this case, and there's an additional one for me, which is this three-volume set is so dense and so heavy that it requires its own two-story packaging to ship it in without damage. And that's the thing I've been working on recently is just designing this tank of a, of a carton to, to ship them right. in and doing drop tests and whatnot just to, to prove that. It, so so it, it, it may be that the box may actually cost more than the books inside to manufacture. Huh. Shipping, it definitely costs more to ship it. And that's not even costing the, the cost of the shipping it around the world, which is even more. So, um, so yes, so the analog world does present its own challenges and you have to have a good reason. For me, in this particular case, the the value of the analog was the experience of the real estate. So um, it, it, we don't have a, most people don't have access to a screen with high enough resolution in the convenient uh, way to go through the book at the scale that it wants to require of this immersive flowing into the the view. So someday we will have screens that will do that at, at a resolution. It's like, it's like you know, seeing, um, it's like a Kindle, but you want to have it 
much, much bigger. That doesn't exist right now. Had it existed, I may have been tempted to just do it digitally. But my own experience in reading and looking at big books is that we still don't have a good substitute for that experience. And I think if I was making a smaller book, um, I'd be I'd be satisfied with the digital. Um, there are some other aspects of the analog in this today's world. One is actually, believe it or not, um, permanence. So um, hmm. there is one of the advantages of a paper book is that it won't go obsolete. We can pick up the book a thousand years from now, and people will still be able to read it. That is not true of anything we have digitally. And it's shocking how fast digital things are lost and vanishing. Um, and um, Brewster Kale, who does the Internet Archive and is backing up books, one of the things, the brilliant thing he's done is that after he scanned things, a book, a magazine, he actually saves the original and catalogs it and puts it in con plastic wrap on a pallet and puts them in a container which is inside a warehouse so there is actually a physical copy because he knows that it's likely that these digital files could be corrupted or lost or not survive an upgrade mm -hmm. and that you still want to have the um the analog and one of the things for him is the analog is also a what we call in biology a type specimen. It's the um, canonical specimen. The thing about digital is very easy to change things and not you not know that it's been changed, but the right. he always has a reference, a reference specimen that says this is the canonical version of that digital file. It's kind of like the gold standard. So 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 that so so in terms of taking the long view, one of the advantages is is paper is that it will be around. Paper, we have paper. Paper actually is very durable if it meets a couple conditions of dry and um, cool. It will last forever. And so um, that's a second attribute of, of doing print today. Um, and um, the there's a third one that I use, um, and that is... is um, it's just that it's um, different or it's special. It's, it's the fact that um, as we move to digital, getting like a letter in the mail on paper that's not junk mail is something that, that can take more attention, that can actually win, it, 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 it draws attention to itself. Mm -hmm. So you can get to pay attention to it. And I think, um, there's there's that aspect of it where um, the craftsman the tactile beauty of it the craftsmanship um, the, the 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 experience becomes more precious because it becomes um, less common and therefore you can command attention through that way. So those for me are the three versions of why to do print. I, I we do about a book a year on print here. Um, that a lot of them are private editions that, that we give away, um, or private books that I use as gifts. Um, so um, that 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 aspect of the kind of being special is is 
one of the reasons why we do the physical books. Right. Yeah. So the, the three the three reasons again. The first one was was that scale the quality, and immersion. immersion. Yeah, the, the quality of the experience can be better right. in print. The second one, the the, the permanence of it. It's like mm -hmm. kind of it's weightier. It's sort of like building in stone. You don't build everything in stone, but right. some things you really do. And then the third one is just it does have that. Um, it has that significance to it. Well, it has has a preciousness yeah. that's due to the fact that it's scare, increasingly scarce. Mm. Right. Your your comment on permanence is really interesting to me because I think you know it, it occurred to me as you were talking that you if you imagine for example we collapse happens you know fifteen hundred years later we have archaeologists looking at our uh, you know New York or San Francisco or something like that. Um, at least for this, you know, the past few decades of our civilization, they would have a hard time finding a lot of the information. Uh, you know, let's assume that they hadn't uh, reinvented digital right, right, technologies, right. really. We would be a very mysterious civilization, I think. You know, the, the way that we look at um, civilizations where we've lost either lost written records or maybe there weren't that many to begin with. And we kind of develop this mythos of, you know, oh, maybe they had you know, weird superhuman powers or something, but, or telepathy or whatever, you know, you get these kind of weird stories, but really that's kind of the coping mechanism for the fact that we have lost the information to know yeah. how they did these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of imagine, uh, you, you know, perhaps it's a selling point or something, but if you're buying Vanishing Asia um, in order to preserve those memories uh, over the next few hundred years, when those societies completely vanish, you want them in print so that a future archaeologist can find yeah. it, something yeah. like that. It could, that could be an argument. And, and it's not even necessary that we have a dark age. It could be a solar flare hmm. with a, um, you know, the, the, the dangers of solar flares are really unappreciated because they could kind of do like an EMP and just, just basically fry everything electronic. And um, even just last week, the Chinese announced they're working on this missile that does a, um, makes a big blast that fries all electronics. And yeah. so, and, you have, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, that that's ver very easy to imagine losing parts of, say, uh, a library, digital library that way. And so, um, so I think, I think the, the idea that, yeah, that you want to have kind of like backed up on paper is not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's not one that translates easily into economic logic. Like, I think this right. is why we also have a very strong focus on subscription, right? On print is the um, gift in a sense that we have for our closest collaborators, right? The people really invested in our community. And um, I think part of that is that you kind of want it going to people who do have this long-termist view of how it can be used. And if, you know, I, I think if you're publishing something that is really valuable that you believe, especially record something important about civilization, uh, you kind of want to hand out as many copies sure. as possible to people who store them the right way. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That was um, when they were doing the time capsule, the Westinghouse time capsule, I believe um, they made a book about it and then they sent it to all the libraries in the world, mm -hmm. um, a free copy to have it scattered throughout all the libraries that there was this record of the time capsule. Well, cause one of the, I did a study of time capsules and the, um, the unfortunate statistic is 95% of them are lost. 
oh, in wow. five years. Um, th and this is absolutely true. Um, actually, I was present. I was present at the unveiling of a um, time capsule that was buried by United Airlines in the 60s or something. And it was lost track of within a decade. Hmm. And then they uncovered it while they're doing some renovation uh they dug they were digging there and they came they came to this time capsule and they put it aside and they lost it for a second time oh no oh wow and then it was finally um rediscovered in like 2010 or something and i went there to opening it up um and it was completely disappointing what was inside but the point is is that um uh Within decades, people people can forget um, where these time capsules are, and so that was why the the um, Westinghouse, with great foresight, site they 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 put um, in little books, paper books, with the location of where this was, and then mm -hmm. sent around the world uh, as a reminder, um, knowing that books were kind of like the last things that would be um, destroyed. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to ask you a little about um, the role of Asia that you see going forward. You mentioned mm -hmm. earlier your view that, yes, we are kind of, you know, Asia is taking its place. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of political brands doing this, right? I'm thinking of like China's Belt and Road. Mm -hmm. um, they leverage this vision. There's this open, diverse we could even maybe say pseudo-exotic Asia, right? That is returning to its historic place as the world center. Um, it sounds like you think there's at least some truth to that narrative. Uh, I, I guess I'd like to hear what do you think is true there, but also what isn't true? You know, that's, what yeah, is being used yeah. disingenuously? That's, or that's, that's well put. Well, f first of all, the majority of the humans alive today live in Asia. And mm -hmm. um, so just in terms of numbers, um, there's a big story there, just arithmetic. There's between two countries, China and Japan, and uh, India, there's 10 times the population of the U.S. just with those two countries. And so that's, 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 a, that's a big number. And, and I think maybe, you know, in the past, in the history, historical times, there was a huge differential between the, the, the rate at which the West modernized and left behind the medieval and Asia lagged tremendously. And so, the, and so we can talk about, you know, why was that? Why did the West rise? And for my interpretation of it is the fact that um, the West invented, the only invention that the Chinese did not invent was the scientific method. And so the West invented that. And most of our prosperity since then has come from that single invention of the scientific method. And so, um, but now that's spread around the world and every culture is adopting the scientific method approach, the evidence-based approach, the design, design thinking approach. Um, and so numbers starting to will matter again in the sense that um, it will take several generations, I think, for Asia to fully embrace that kind of culture. Mm. And I think it will be um, a hybrid. It'll be, it'll be, it won't be western culture but it will still be um part of that strand of um evidence-based um in, uh, innovation and design and science scientific progress so one of the things i think people 
are not ready for it or, or have trouble overcoming is, is this belief that Asia could be innovative and creative, just like they believe that robots aren't going to be innovative or creative, which is also just as, as wrong. Um, it will take several generations, but so, so they're not going to, it's not going to happen right away. So that's, so for me, that's a myth that needs to be overcome is the myth that Asia cultures are not capable of being or fostering innovation or creativity. And I think that's not correct. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things that, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's much talk about pan Asia, like a kind of a European Union, a Asian Union. I don't, if there is, I don't think that, that doesn't seem very likely to me. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, I think there's more differences between Asia, it's like between, you know, I don't know, uh, or, uh, Pakistan and Korea than there is between Korea and the U.S., you know, in many ways. I think yeah, a lot of these borders are getting harder, too, it seems like. Well, well, not just the borders. I mean, I think cultural differences. I think there's huge, I think the, 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 the range, the delta of cultural differences in Asia is vaster than between some Asian countries and the U.S. Mm -hmm. culture. So, mm -hmm. um, um, so, so I, I don't, I don't see kind of a pan-Asian thing happening. Um, I'm not, uh, other myths about Asia is, um, I think there's this idea, well, that you have kind of a, a, a number one superpower like in China or maybe India. But I, I think we're also past the point in our own development as a species on this planet where we are going to have super uh, solo superpowers or empires. I, I, I think it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute with me. Uh, remains to be mm -hmm. seen, but um, I think we're making planetary systems. Um, we're making more, we're becoming more globalist, no matter how strong nativist nationalism is. I don't think it's as, it is as strong as the attraction of globalism. And it's not because of, of some top-down plan. It's simply that young people know what's available. They have more, their options are more visible. They're more likely to move mm -hmm. if needed. And the, it's the bottom, it's from the bottom of that appetite to have what other people have and they can see and share that is going to drive the globalism. It's not, this is the, the top will only respond to that. It's not like there are people designing this or planning it out. It's, it's I think it's, it's, it's a appetite that's coming from, from the bottom from the young people of the world and more so every year. I know you tend to view technology as having a very strong determining factor in these things. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like your concept of the tech name here, where we could even attribute a sort of um, non-conscious intentionality, perhaps we could say, uh, to this process. So, and and so, I'm interested in your claim that that we, insofar as these become more scientific societies, let's say, do you think that's basically a necessary condition in an industrial society mm -hmm. that an industrial civilization must become like a socially 
um, I don't mean socially scientific in that sense, but a, a civilization that uses scientific ways of thinking? Or would it be possible to think of an industrial society that does not embrace those modes of thought? Um, no, I, I think it's much more the former. I think that um, engineers tend to be evidence-based for the most part. I mean, there might <laughs> you might find some spiritual engineer who's working from the gut, but they're not going to be very successful. So I think as soon as you have engineers and technologists, they almost by demand have to be much more evidence-based. And I mm -hmm. think that bleeds over into um, other aspects of their life. Going back to, to this question about, you know, what, what might we have wrong about Asia? Um, there was, you know, there was Francis Fukuyama at the end of history, this idea that, that you know, the American West Washington consensus was sort of the end at the end point that everybody was moving to. Um, I think that the Chinese are developing an alternative a version of that. And it's a total, it's a total, what I call total information society. And some would say, well, that's a total surveillance society. Yes. Um, but what it is, is, is what they're trying to do is they're trying to have evidence-based policy. And their idea is that we're engineers and we're going to engineer society. And to do that, we want to have, we want to collect all the, inf the data about how actually people do things and what's being used and what mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. from that data. We're going to then engineer the policy. And, um, it's not necessarily that it's centralized because it doesn't have to be centralized. It's just the fact that they're going to try to make evidence-based policy. So that means that they're going to track everything in order to make better policy. I think that's, that's a alternative view of the future. Mm -hmm. That's an alternative future. And by, by and large so far, Chinese society has the support of Chinese citizens who have supported it because they see the benefits they they, they experience the benefits of that in contrast we have the u.s system which is a based on evidence that's all i can say right so we make <laughs> policy based on all kinds of things but very not frequently enough to is it based on the actual evidence of what how people do things or what what's actually happening and so we might have the opportunity to kind of race these two different right. views. Um, so going back then to kind of um, the culture, I think um, does entail this global culture does assume a certain amount of engineering um, evidence-based testing and uh, a mindset for it so 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 i i i think that is part of this mix i think this is part of that mix i it, i find it hard to see a modern society that did not do that interesting so the regions you traveled um have seen a lot of rise and fall of different cultures and civilizations yes and so i'm curious just as a long-term technological optimist how how you see that rise and fall cycle of civilizations is that something that's still in our future or is that yeah, yeah. is that contradicting the, the the optimism or is it is the optimizing some sort of something right. happening underneath that or, or over top of it yeah no i i think it's 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 true absolutely true that, that you know that, that um 
take anywhere, not just Asia, but most places of the world, um, there's been an ebb and flow of different um, political structures that come through or um, national, even identities. Although identities are, are, national identities are relatively new. Right. And I think we're not done yet in the sense that I think we can, um, I think we will be able to have another layer above national identities that can that will be superseded mm-hmm. without losing the the lower identities. Um, but what, one of the interesting things that, that, that uh, Juan Enrique um, made a talk on that I, I, have, I never forget, which is that there's been no American president who's died under the same flag, American flag, that he was born under meaning that the actual boundaries of the u.s have always been changing and are still changing so um in the last couple of changes there's just been additional states added like hawaii alaska but it's not inconceivable that the even the boundaries of the u.s could change within mm-hmm. our own lifetimes either additional state or succession whatever it is and so um, for me, the, the political boundaries are very, very mobile and much more mm, fluid than we tend to think. Um, and again, most of the, throughout the world, particularly the British Empire, those boundaries were just hand-drawn almost, you know, randomly. You know, mm-hmm. India, Pakistan, it's like, they're, 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 they're just, they're, they're, they're very, very ephemeral. And so I don't, I don't see, I don't see those kinds of, I, I see those kind of changing of nations and devolution of nations even within europe you know scotland becoming a nation Th- those are all kind of i was a, a trivial but those aren't really that important i think and and i would expect them to be constantly changing um one of the big events that we're looking forward to and i mean looking at in the next hundred years is this population implosion is the decreasing number of people on the planet, which does have a demographic inertia, which means that it's going to be very, 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 very difficult to try and change. It's it's almost inevitable that we'll have shrinking global population. And when that happens, as it begins to happen, it's already happening at like in places like Japan, where they not just have low fertility rates, but they actually have fewer people in the country every year. When that happens globally, I think we're going, it will change a lot of the politics and ideas about nationhood and empires because there will be an appetite, there will be a demand for people come to our country, settle with us, come to our city. We need people. And, um, and, and that I think um, will change a little bit of the flavor of these when when we might see more if we ever if we came up with a human right of mobility which says that if you're born on this planet you can live anywhere you want on this planet as long as you pay local as long as you obey local rules in other words you have the right to move wherever you want that might that might come about because of this um population implosion where you want to have people able to move wherever they want to. And that I think would be, you know, we'd have the additional of automatic translation machines that would help us to 
get over that language barrier. I think that would be a, a new era in the planet mm -hmm. that was transcending some of these ideas of of nation the nationhood and empires. They, they, they're not going to eliminate them, but they're going to make them not as important as they were before. So, Kevin, we're on the last couple of minutes here. Before we wrap up, uh, if people want to buy Vanishing Egypt, where can they do that? Yes, it was a Kickstarter um, campaign. It's now on Amazon. Um, the books aren't ready yet. They'll probably be in December. By the time they get to us, they're being printed in Turkey. Um, and the because of COVID, there's an international clogging of, of, yeah. of trade and containers or insurance supplies. So actually, I'm having problems even just getting the book, which is done printed, getting the books here to the US. Um, but um, there's pre-sale on Amazon under Vanishing Asia. So you can certainly order it there. Um, and um, uh, I did have an Instagram account where I was posting many of the images that did finally appear in the book. Um, if you were really anxious for, for seeing some of them. Um, so yes, Amazon, thank you for asking. Um, it's a big book. You'll need um, a lot of space for it. It's heavy, 27 pounds. Couple of coffee tables. Yes, it is a coffee table. I just need to make, make some legs for it. Yeah. And, um, I am really delighted that uh, anybody who's interested in it. And uh, the one thing I can say about it is I can't show you exactly, but here's uh, my uh, two-story library. I have a lot of photo books about Asia. I have a lot of photo books. I have a lot of travel books. I have a lot of books. And there's no other book like this. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can absolutely guarantee you that there's no other book like it. 9,000 mm -hmm. 9,000 pictures and 9,000 captions. So, yeah, many years have bent into this. All right. 50 years. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up then. So, that was Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine, author of Vanishing Asia. Very interesting thoughts. Palladium Magazine, these discussions, and our print magazine, of course, is only possible with your support uh, for access to Palladium print editions, community salons, full podcasts, and other benefits, sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Thanks for joining us for today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.